Hello everyone. In this podcast, I'd like to delve into the fascinating subject of forensic odontology. Odontology refers to the study of teeth, their structure, and diseases that can affect them. Forensic odontology is when we start to apply our knowledge of dental science to the administration of the law in criminal investigations. Now, most people have dental records. I mean, they can be created easily enough through making a dental impression from a suspect. They can then be compared to either teeth found on a corpse or bite marks found at the scene of a crime, for example. But for that to happen effectively, though, it relies on a sound knowledge of dental anatomy, histology, radiography, dental materials, but also anomalies of dentition. So basically anything unusual in appearance or structure, for example. Interpretation of evidence is undertaken by a forensic odontologist who may be called as an expert witness. Now, there are a number of famous examples where teeth have been used to identify someone. If I were to just pick a handful of the most interesting ones. Ted Bundy infamous serial killer was identified by a bite mark. The topic of bite marks I'll talk about a little bit later in this podcast. John Wilkes Booth, he was identified from a gold plug on the right side of his jaw. Wilkes Booth, uh, famous of course for assassinating American President Abraham Lincoln. Then there's the identification of Sir Nicholas II from dental records. But perhaps, well certainly to me, the most intriguing of all, it was the elaborate dental records, including radiograph, um, sorry, and spare crowns that helped to identify the body of Adolf Hitler. When um, Hitler's bunker was captured by Russians in it was 1945, a piece of bone, a lower jaw in fact, uh, was recovered. And that was compared with an x-ray of Hitler's head, presumed to be taken I think around 1944, so just a year earlier overlapping the four post-mortem teeth onto the x-ray shows the similarity of root width and tooth position. Some to this day still question the validity of these findings, but nevertheless, similarities were seen. So what scope does forensic dentistry actually have? When would there be a need for it? Well, it turns out in quite a number of circumstances. Identifying unknown human range through dental records and the craniofacial bones, um, age estimation of both living and deceased, recognition and analysis of bite marks found on victims, analysis of orofacial trauma associated with uh, person abuse, determining the gender of an unidentified individual. It's even used in enlisting the ethnicity. Quite interestingly, studying the teeth can help scientists build a picture of lifestyle and diet of skeletal remains. If um, in a scenario where there's multiple bodies recovered from a location, perhaps through some kind of mass disaster, then dental identification is critical. There actually can be legal grounds on which a forensic odontologist can be called upon. So, for example, in the case of will disputes, insurance claims and disputes over burial wishes. So before we consider why exactly teeth are so useful to study, let's discuss some basic human dentistry. We've got two arches present in the oral cavity, the maxillary and the mandibular arch. Since both arches are symmetrical, the whole dentition is divided into um, we call them four quadrants, 
each containing the same number and same types of teeth. So each of the four, so it's almost if you take your mouth and, and divide it up into four, like a line horizontally and then line vertically, in each of the four quadrants, you'll have two incisors, a canine, two premolars, and roughly two to three molars. Two size, shape, and arrangement in the mouth are important determinants of the type of food that an animal can obtain and actually consume. So teeth can be used to tell what type of diet an animal has. Four major groups of animals um, with respect to diet exist, and that includes carnivore, herbivore, insectivore, so eat ones that just eat insects, and omnivore, so eats all. Now consider this scenario. Someone takes a bite out of an apple and gives it to you and asks you to examine their bite mark. What would you notice? Well, aside from a giant chunk of apple missing, you'd be able to see the outline of the bite, and from that you might be able to gauge how many teeth they have, or how how wide the bite mark is, and so maybe like how wide their jaw is perhaps. To the trained eye, however, you'd be able to deduce so much more. The shape of the curvature, the number of tooth marks, horizontal diameter, vertical diameter, depth of depression of the tooth, the distances between two teeth, even the orientation of each tooth and any other defining marks. Granted, unless this apple is going to form part of some in-depth investigation, some big forensic investigation, you're unlikely to need that level of information, but it is possible to get it. So why use teeth? What is it about teeth that makes them such a useful forensic tool? Well, there are three key reasons. The first being the fact that they're both stable and durable. And by that I mean teeth and restorative materials that may be in place. Teeth are the most durable organs in the whole human body. They can be heated to approximately 1,600 degrees Celsius without any loss at all of microstructure. There are murderers who have tried to hide their crimes by burning the victims' bodies, but the teeth cannot be destroyed and it's the teeth that have been their downfall. The second key reason why teeth are so important to analyse is down to their uniqueness. So when we talk about uniqueness, I'm talking about in terms of size, shape, pattern, wear, repair. The sheer number of combinations as such makes for a very distinctive pattern. So for example, imagine somebody having... Uh, four missing teeth and four filled teeth, just for the sake of argument. That mouth alone can produce more than 700 million dental combinations. And finally, reason number three, resistance. The teeth can resist extreme conditions. So they're excellent sources of DNA. DNA you can amplify using a technique known as PCR or polymerase chain reaction. That would allow comparisons with known biological anti-mortem samples of the person, such as hair, epithelial cells from a toothbrush or a biopsy. And if unavailable, DNA patterns can be compared to a parent or a sibling, uh, allowing for identification. If you are interested to learn a little more about the PCR procedure, which I think is a fascinating genetic technique, then there's a video tutorial that I've recorded on YouTube um, called Mr. I Explains PCR. Might be worth a watch. Now, the question you might be thinking is, well, what happens if somebody doesn't have any teeth? The role of uh, what are called palatal rugae in identification is essential in those with no teeth or edentulous persons, to give them their, their proper name. Rugae patterns, or this palatal rugae, um, like teeth, are considered unique to an individual. 
what they are so these rugae patterns on the maxilla or maxillary dentures um or on the roof or the floor of the mouth they can actually be compared well, I'll talk about dentures they can be compared to old dentures that may be recovered from a person's residence or a plaster model if that's available so if if they have no teeth it is likely that they do have dentures and the patterns that those dentures have made in the mouth uh you can compare to uh other uh standards if you like so what i mean is and you'll be able to find these for yourself if you know look in a mirror if you were able to look where your kind of teeth are at the top or the bottom almost the, the kind of part of the, the the gum if you like or the other palate if you must be, be more specific if you look at the palate you'll notice distinctive like lines or like grooves they are the palatal rugae so in people with no teeth what you want to do is look for the the patterns that form specifically there so i've spoken about when you would want to study teeth and why but what exactly could we determine from those studies so let's look at some of the most interesting things we can determine the first one being ethnicity so anthropologists divide race into the following sort of broad groups uh, and they are caucasoid negroid mongoloid eskimos and american indians now the features uh the dental features used to describe population differences are broadly categorized as metric so features based on measurements and non-metric so the presence or absence of certain features now what we notice is that the size of the teeth varies in the different races so for example larger teeth are seen in australian south american indian tribes their lateral incisor is relatively large compared to the central incisor in uh, mongoloids the intermediate sized teeth are seen in again just for example taiwanese aborigines and australian whites determining the sex of an unknown uh, human remain is the second step in building a dental profile gender can be determined based on data from a number of sources craniofacial morphology so that's the shape of the cranium and the, the sort of facial bones and dimensions sex differences in tooth dimensions tooth morphology but also sex determination by dna analysis now this is where it goes a little bit uh, technical so amylogenin or amel amel for short is one of the major matrix proteins secreted by the ameloblasts of the enamel now the amel amel gene coding for a highly conserved protein is located on the x and y chromosomes in humans the sex chromosomes or pair 23 to be specific therefore females who are uh, xx have two identical amel genes but the males who are xy have two non-identical genes and what i think is incredible is that through preparing dna from teeth by a technique known as ultrasonification and then subsequent pcr amplification a hundred percent success in determining the sex of the individual has been obtained by some scientists so to, to kind of summarize that and make it a little bit more straightforward what we're saying is that there is the ability to look at the dna that we find in teeth and look specifically at the presence of genes coding for proteins that are secreted by the enamel and from that we're able to determine whether a tooth is from a male or a female 
Now the final step in this triad, if you like, of dental profiling is age estimation. And it's really important uh, subspeciality, I guess you could say, of forensic science. Now, dental age estimation makes use of a number of a number of factors: morphological, so the shape of the teeth, uh, radiographic, histological, and biochemical methods to examine the age-dependent changes that we see in the teeth. And it's grouped into three phases typically: aging in prenatal teeth, neonatal, and then early sort of postnatal is the sort of the first of the three phases. Then we look at age estimation in children and then adolescence. That's the second kind of phase. And then finally, we look at age estimation in adults. Now, when estimating age, the forensic odontologist will check for a number of things. Now, one of the key things I look for is the presence of a neonatal line, indicating a live birth and subsequent growth stages. They look for the dry weight of a mineralized tooth. Now, it sounds quite specific, but newborns, we're talking about 0.5 grams, a six-month-old postnatal to 1.8 grams. And they'll look for any teeth eruption patterns, any signs of wear or transparency of the roots or the dentin. Estimation of age from the teeth is substantially harder where there are, there are signs of uh, regressive changes. And by that, I mean significant dental decay. Forensic odontology isn't without its faults, though. Dental records are far more difficult to examine than fingerprints, and the records that are kept may be inadequate. The main issue is that there really is no standardisation of dental records, so there's no recognised minimum number of concordant features required for a positive identification. The written entries that uh, dentists may keep are subject to error, and they might just flat out exclude any alterations that the teeth have had, so any decays, uh, filled teeth or even extracted teeth. In the second part of this podcast, I'd like to talk about bite marks. Cutaneous, so on the surface of the skin, cutaneous bite marks represent patterned injuries in the skin produced by teeth. Now, they may be inflicted by humans or animals, most commonly by dogs and cats. I mean, the, yeah, other animals certainly can bite, but the ones that we uh, typically see are from dogs and cats. Now, those of forensic significance most often accompany uh, violent crimes such as homicide, murder, sexual assault, child abuse, domestic violence, battery. Human bites tend to be more broad-shaped. They're U-shaped, somewhat circular uh, or oval. Animal bites tend to be narrower in the sort of anterior or more forward aspect, a bit more V-shaped and elongated. And the morphology of the teeth, the shape is notably different. The usual sites of bite marks are seen to be typically on the breasts and in the thighs in the majority of female sexual assaults. In cases of child abuse, uh, more in the genital area. And in adult males, most commonly on the fingers, arms and shoulders as a result of fighting. So how do the police classify bite marks? Well, the camera it depends on the classification system. The Cameron Sims classification looks at the causing agent. So, is it human? Is it animal? And they look at the substrate material. Is it on skin, body tissue, on on food, and on another object, for example? The McDonald classification is slightly different. That looks at things like tooth pressure or tongue pressure as a result. 
but it tends really to be based on the severity of injury. So for example, with hemorrhage, you'd get small bleeding spots. With abrasions, maybe like an undamaging kind of mark on the skin or a contusion, maybe a ruptured blood vessel or bruise. Earlier, I mentioned the name Ted Bundy. When I think about criminal investigations into bite marks analysis, or bite mark analysis rather, Ted Bundy is one recognisable name that really sticks out. He's been the subject of numerous TV shows, documentaries, and it was his dental casting, so the dental casting of his own teeth, that finally put him behind bars. His story is truly fascinating, so I thought to finish this podcast, I'd like to just give you a brief overview of the case, especially given it was his own teeth that caught him out. So Ted Bundy was born in 1946 in Vermont, grew up to be a a charming, articulate, intelligent uh, young man. But in interviews, he recalled being antisocial in his teenage years and wandering the streets looking for discarded pornography or open windows through which he could just spy on unsuspecting women. He also had, and it's not common knowledge, he also had an extensive juvenile record for theft that was dismissed completely when he turned 18. He tended to prey on young and attractive college students, often uh, with a ruse wearing his arm in a sling or his leg in a fake cast and walking on crutches. He'd use his charm and his fake disability to convince his victims to help him like, carry books or unload objects from his car. He was often known to impersonate authority figures, so like policemen, firefighters, to gain victims' trust. And once they got into his car, that's when he would strike them over the head with usually a crowbar or a pipe. Bundy was able to rape and murder scores of women in this way. He typically uh, strangled or bludgeoned the victims as well as mutilated them. In some cases, he even uh, displayed decapitated heads in his apartment. Several people contacted the authorities to report Bundy as a potential matching suspect, but the police consistently ruled him out based on, and it seems it seems ludicrous now, but based on his seemingly kind of upstanding character and clean-cut appearance. Bundy was able to avoid detection pretty much uh, because of this, but largely due to the really rudimentary forensic techniques of the 1970s. He was arrested in 1975, but he managed to escape three times before police were finally able to apprehend him. At his trial, the prosecution focused on two bite marks located on the backside of one of the victims. And using photographic evidence in court, the odontologist was able to match three stripes at the top of the bite mark to Bundy's teeth on his lower jaw. And then a study of the accused wax dental castings unquestionably corroborated this. Bundy died in the electric chair on January 24th, 1989, but only confessed to 30 murders, although we know now it's much more. So thank you, uh, everyone, for listening to this podcast on forensic odontology. I hope that was interesting.